Good morning and welcome to YouTube's favorite comic book channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. Want to remind everybody that we do have a Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon out there. Three different levels will get you access to our videos early, get you in front of the Kayfabe effect, and at the King Kayfaber level, it'll also give you access to our recording sessions where we kind of go back and forth with some of our King Kayfabers, talk about upcoming guests and interviews, and uh, just have a general nice comics conversation. So check that out, see what level fits you. We are also working cartoonists. You can see our bibliographies here on the screen right now. My next book, Street Angel Princess of Poverty, is available for pre-order from Image Comics. This collects all of the Street Angel comics that are not included in Deadliest Girl Alive, also from Image. So pick up both books. You'll have a complete collection of Street Angel comics. Hulk Grand Design and The Plain Janes also available right now wherever you buy books. Ed has a big year coming up, starting with Hip Hop Family Tree, The Omnibus, available now for pre-orders, collecting all of the Hip Hop Family Tree comics, along with 140 extra pages and a beautiful oversized hardcover edition. Pre-order that now, get a little bit of a discount off of the uh, cover price. Red Room Season 3 Crypto Killers will be starting up very soon. Pre-orders are open for this. You see the main number one issue cover there. There are some variants coming out. I am doing a cover based on Rob Liefeld's Youngblood. Peach Momoko adds her unique flair, Ed's second cover, and a blank sketch cover for all the sickos out there who want to add to the uh, the blood pool around Red Room. There's also X-Men Grand Design, three volumes in an omnibus, Hip Hop Family Tree available in treasury size editions in a box set, and WYSIWYG. So pick up those books if you haven't already added them to your shelf. All right, Ed, so we are here today we read a bunch of interviews, at least what we could find, of Richard Corbin, and we're going to have kind of a, uh, a loose conversation, I think, about these interviews with uh, an artist who I hold in the highest regard in comics, but a guy who was very private. Not a ton of interviews out there with him, and um, maybe because he wasn't happy with how some of those interviews went, including a somewhat notorious heavy metal interview from 1981. This actually stretches across three issues. So we get into some really cool territory with it. And um, this could be a longer conversation. So I'm just going to dive right in. One note, these issues I bought originally because Steranko's Outland yeah. ran in these things. Yeah, like one of the things that comes to mind certainly with uh, with this interview is like our relationship to this interview as interviewers. And it really makes me respect the opportunity that we have with the people who give us their time to capture some stuff on the record. Uh, I don't know about you. I feel a tremendous amount of pressure uh, for, on myself. I almost never sleep the night before we record because I just want to do right by the person we talk to. I want to get great stuff on the record. I think I think we should do this part last. Not first? We're, we're kind of setting the stage for it. Okay, okay. Because sure. I don't know that we need to go through this point by point. But after the interview ran, this is the following issue. Richard Corbin wrote a letter in and said, please run this letter without edit without changing it because he was unhappy with the interview and and i was shaking my head when you're saying about feeling the pressure whenever we talk to these people i was shaking my head in agreement yes i, I know exactly what you're talking about and you know we'll point out some of that as we go through the interview yeah but that's what richard corbin is talking about here is unhappiness with how this interview is uh is, is conducted and right. how it is then transcribed so he points out certain specific issues of like this is wrong this is wrong um, yeah, like well, let's let's cover that at the end because because we we have two interviews in this thing, and you get the same basic general 
information out of him in both pretty much man uh it's two, two different points in time this is 81 the other one might be like 92 or something uh so it's different points in his career he's 40 years old here uh but it's the extraction process and stuff that is just it's 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 um it's disrespectful uh Richard Corbin's wife's chest comes into the conversation. I can't believe that. Yeah, like that dude should have got fucking what, where punched I in the came mouth. From, that would have been violent. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it doesn't look right on the page. No, it doesn't. And I think that's a lot of uh what Corbin is saying is like, dude, we were joking and then like he I don't know this Brad Balfour. I know that he's in credited as a contributing editor to this. Uh I, I seen some stuff online. I put I popped his name in, he said he said uh uh, expert interviewer or something is something that I came up and he must have become an expert after this because uh says, says that he interviews rock stars around this time period like Corbin refers to that in his rebuttal uh, letter and so I, I think that he just came in with a different approach in terms of Corbin's not trying to be a rock star you know this is a guy the, who is a hard-working artist mostly by himself in a room it's the opposite and uh and I think that you know, it's it's oil and, and water. Yeah, the way these guys mix. But there are there are good points in here too. Musicians, extroverted, uh, and artists. Like there's parts where Corbett's talking about coming up, where when his family moved into a house, it had a kind of a big closet, and he moved his drawing board in there. Yes, like that's a guy that just wants to like be alone and make stuff. Right. Um, first thing that I that I flag is uh, this guy said that his stuff, not the interviewer, but from a different magazine review, that his. Uh, Comics were obsessed by sex, death, and violence. And Corbin's answer is all humanity is. Yeah. And and I thought about that ever since I read this interview. It's such an interesting concept to think about. Those are like the big themes in life. You know, um, theme comes up in here. Some of these interviews that we've been doing or process things, you know, watching the Alan Moore Masterclass, we've done... I don't know, 1,200 videos. And I feel like the idea of theme is something I never think about, except that it comes up again and again in these last several interviews and things that we've looked at. And it does make me think about, like, should I be thinking that way? Should I be conscious of that stuff? Because it, it does come up in here several times. Yeah, all the, all the big guys will say, you, you make your work, and then a theme emerges. Uh, when people go in with a the theme, we know comics where it, people go in with a theme and it just reeks of pretense and is shallow and is corny. So like you just make your work and then things happen over time. Um, talks about, you know, like the, the work is like your work is weird. And they talk a lot about the exaggeration in, in his work, both, both the interviewer with questions, but also Corbin and sort of describing his techniques. Like if there's something different about a character, if their nose is long, it's going to be super long. And it kind of goes back to the idea of the way men and women are depicted, right? Super muscles, big sex organs. And it's Corbin saying, you know, emphasizing these differences. If it's a woman character, it's going to look like a woman character from super far away or up close. And it's almost a, uh, I don't know, an artificial pushing of into the grotesque. And the interviewer uh, pushes, pushes uh, Corbin artificially into suggestions of like homoeroticism and shit mm -hmm. where they spend whole lines about the homoeroticness of and the potential latent homosexuality of richard corbin it's really offensive stuff i think i think that uh corbin invited this guy to his home like i think i think that's in the letter that corbin um shows and and the guy the guy saw corbin's wife you know uh so you invite this guy to your house and the dude is an asshole like the, the interview really is kind of jerky 
you do get a lot of good stuff out of Corbin over time, but it's not really with the help of the interviewer. See, the other thing is, I'm thinking of the Stan Lee video series, right? With interviews with Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman and Sergio and, and Bob Kane, like all these people that are, you know, Sergio's with us still and we have a shoot interview with him. But like, it was a tremendous opportunity you can't, to get these guys on the record and you squander it. Yeah, it's so abrasive. Like this is the very first part of the interview and all of that stuff feels like it doesn't work. And now what? You've sort of put this artist on his on the defensive. Right. It it, it, it is weird, you know, like um because I've read stuff with Howard Stern talking about interview his process for interviews, you yeah. know, and, and Ira Glass and different people that interview people. And this and it just feels like, man, you're really taking a chance with this. And this is this is the the Errol Morris in Terratron approach where you you ask you it's like negging, you know? You kinda like neg and then um shut up and then just let those people feel uncomfortable and start talking uh you don't have to do that you know you like pick pick your spots kind of thing like this guy's probably i I can imagine richard corbin lives a whole day without saying one word so you don't you got to make a person like that feel comfortable right says he's a sex maniac and i think that's part of that joking around part that once you read it in print yeah, it, it just, can come off very differently. Yeah, yeah. I guess you know we do have such a such a benefit of uh, the the audio yes. when when we when we chat with our guys. But, oh man, I wish this audio existed. You know, like right. some of the Gary Groth yeah. comics journal interviews. That's it. Yeah, you're right about that. Like if you remove the voice and you remove the visuals, you you really are left to a lot of room for interpretation and, and, and just te- cold text. And as um as like the editor and the person putting it together. And I'm sure all of the, uh, everything they talked about is not perfectly transcribed. Uh, you know, there's more other stuff. The editor could help, help out. Like, like Gary Groth will put in parentheses laughs, you know, like, yeah, right. like the sex mania thing, like in parentheses, you put, you know, chuckles. Right. And then that lets you know that there's like a joke part to that, that he's not so serious, but that's not in there. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like this guy may have been influenced by like a Hunter S. Thompson but maybe not with the talent to pull off the Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Um, I thought this was a great comment. They're talking about how how people want to conform to society. They don't want to be weird themselves. They want to look at other people who are weird. That's Richard Corbin's words. And it reminds me of something I heard about TV, I don't know, 15 years ago, of like people watch TV for two reasons. One is you identify with the person in terms of it's almost aspirational or you want to feel better than them. And I think that's the more popular show. And that's kind of what he's saying here with the weirdness stuff. We've talked about, uh, you know, like like Dennis Kitchen was on. We, we've had different ideas of like artist therapy come up. And I feel like this idea of cathar- catharsism in comics and in underground comics is kind of an interesting track because he gets into it with another cartoonist. And that cartoonist says, doesn't, doesn't value horror and fantasy and science fiction. Oh, this is so interesting. So he doesn't name the guy's name here. But in an, the next interview, it's Bill Griffith. Yeah, who then ultimately he says he has no beef with right. in the letter that he writes, you know, kind of uh, trying to set the record straight and talks about the the comedy of the conversation, having fun because he because in that same interview he says like I, I should go see that guy, like like watch what happens when I go see that guy, something th- threatening. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, gets into from the cathartic talk into this idea of like whatever message or themes in his work, and it's 
it's an emphasis on the individual. Individualism comes up again and again throughout this interview and, and his characters being these individuals, you know, in a post-apocalyptic world where gangs of mutants or something are a threat, the hero's this individual. And uh, that seems to be one of his themes. And it, uh, it's aesthetic. I mean, like, there's no one else like Richard Corbin. Which is awesome because one of these does focus on that process. So we get a little bit of that. Each of these interviews, there's three, uh, you know, it's a three-parter, has a creator's comments on Corbin. So this kid, this guy's 40, 40 years old. He's my age. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's Kirby, it's Mobius that do the first round. And Kirk, Kirby's, I think, is so spot on. Yeah, it talks about piece. him being a, uh, a, a hard worker. His hero is a Conan type. And uh, I don't think Corbin would create another heroic image if he could. This one fulfills his particular fantasy perfectly. That's an amazing quote from Kirby. It really Kirby. is. Bad choice of black on dark blue. Real dumb. Um, not, not the best design he in that choice. Heavy metal notorious for that kind of stuff. Mobius talks about um, his his figures, like yeah. his bodies and, and how sex sexual they are and stuff like that, but really like just his drawings and the beauty of his drawings. So a really great quote from Mobius and Jack Kirby covering different elements of Corbin's work, but praising it, of course. And a lot of this is about violence. And I mean, I guess his comics are violent, but they're not... When I think of Corbin, my first thought isn't violence. You know, it's not... There are a lot of comics where violence is one of the top things, I think. And I guess I, I recognize it, but there's almost a greater threat of violence, you know, tone-wise to me than uh, than the actual graphic violence, I think, even though there's some of that. I think the prowess he has with the human figure, like when you show an accurately drawn muscular guy, like punches somebody in the face, it holds a different kind of weight. It's very memorable. All right. So part two, here we go. Boy, these, um, going through these heavy metals, they're so impressive. Yeah, it, they, they, at this era. If we were to flip through the rest of one of these issues, we will. It is, it is remarkable how loaded these things are, man. Imagine if you stumbled into like early comics reading and picked up like one of these issues. Rick, you'd be a fan for life. Heavy metal does really well for us. And we did the first two issues. We have, we have videos of the first two issues. Um, we should we should just do them all eventually, just like we did with Wizard. We should just go one after the other after another. Like go through your collection, go through my collection. If we are missing one, I use digital and just put that we've done that before. Where we just had like an iPad sitting down there. But uh, the first two years for sure, three years, uh, it's they 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 hot shotted. Man, they sure do. The talent on these pages is just unbelievable. I love this illustration. Might be one of my favorite Corbin illustrations. Everything is here. The lighting, the symmetry, the composition, the painting. Just beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. I, I cannot be more impressed. And I look at it with very little airbrush experience, and I just think, like, I don't know how you even make something like this. Yeah, I you think know, it takes a long time. So it feels like you'd have to be just frisking things off. That, I mean, that's what they do, you know? Like, that's the whole... Unreal. Uh, Bolin said, you know, the, the, the job isn't... Putting the color on is two seconds, but cutting your friskets and all that stuff... We get into his childhood through this part, uh, pretty, uh, I, I hate to say unremarkable, but he doesn't have some defining, like, traumatic experience that puts him on his path. Yeah, yeah, right. And and uh, this Brad Belfort is, like, classic New York speak, where it's just talking about the dismal setting. Like, throughout the conversation, insults the wife, insults the hometown that Corbin never leaves. Yeah, the Midwest. Uh, insults you know, makes allusions to the man's sexuality, all kinds of sh shit. And, and, you know, he's talking, talking smack on 
his landscape, wondering like, uh, you know, what kind of mind can can be fostered in this area, yada yada. Talks a little bit about like having that art ability, but not really knowing like what do you do with that. You right. know, I ended up working for uh, like an industrial film production company for nine years, and even even gets into because he's around forty at this time. I don't know if it's this installment or not, but he kind of reflects on, he feels like he wasted some time sure. by being there for nine years, maybe should have stayed there for five years. Uh, he is working with Warren and Underground simultaneously. So they cover this. This is like early foray into actually being published and kind of what his plans were. Self-published some stuff and said that messed up on pricing. Yeah, That was a big problem. He said if they sold out the entire print run, the cover price was wrong. It wouldn't have made money. Right. Uh, so you can see... There, there's certain business stuff in here. Like at one point he says, you know, like the business thing is no friendships. You're in business. Right. It's not friendship. And he hits that a couple of times. So it's kind of interesting to see his take of comics business because he does own so much of his work. But there's a couple of things he doesn't own. Like Bloodstar is one of those that he doesn't have rights to. And he's very clear about that. You know, it feels like there were some bumps along the way as he realized what was important and valuable and to protect this stuff. Yeah. But the Warren stuff, Dennis Kitchen talked about Jim Warren having kind of a, uh, a tough reputation, maybe a difficult guy to get along with. That comes up a little bit in here as well with some of the uh, back and forth and changes that Warren would ask for. Very interesting to think of a guy, again, of Corbin's talent and the struggle to get that work out there. You know, you had to work with someone like Jim Warren who wasn't necessarily a good guy to work with. Yeah. Or you were working with undergrounds and that dries up. Like it was a tough, it was a tough road, man, in the seventies. Like, what are you gonna do if you're rich world-class artist, but the distribution mechanisms, the publishing mechanisms that are available are so limited compared to what we have today. Yeah, I think it's well illustrated in the Klaus conversation that we put up where he was talking about heavy metal being a vector, like a possible place where he could put stuff where that's maybe a semi adjacent to the work that he wanted to do. But like, that was part of the job of an independent cartoonist of that kind of dark age of like the undergrounds and the post underground was like, you got to kind of m manipulate your work and find your own platforms or your own piece of real estate. You know, Jules Pfeiffer had a regular strip in the Village Voice that he held onto with a death grip for the longest time. Like, you just have to, there's an extra skill that was required that uh, you had to use to, to get yourself out there. And for all of the back and forth that he may have had with Jim Warren, Jim Warren absolutely adored Corbin's work and heavily promoted him and let, let Corbin be the guy who was the color section right. uh, uh, across everything. I don't know that any other color Warren work that wasn't done by Richard Corbin, even stuff like in the Spirit magazines, it's Richard Corbin coloring Will Eisner. That's, a, that's the very first Corbin I ever had was uh, that, the first couple Warren magazines, man, with uh, Corbin coloring over top. He says that the undergrounds were just bootlegged in Europe. Yeah. And that that's how his his work found European publishers, which, of course, he flourishes in Europe. Yes. So interesting how that works. You know, like a lot of shenanigans back in the day, man. A lot of shenanigans. And now. Yeah. <laughs> shenanigans always. When he hooked up with the French, French, it was almost it was almost uh, self-preservation because like now that you have a liaison over there, now you can task them 
with kind of putting a kibosh on some nonsense. Yeah, you know what? This is that part two that I was mentioning, like very limited options. So these guys, Von Baudet, right? Like they, he hooks up with Von Baudet at a convention. And it turns out they're both fans of each other's work. So that's kind of cool. But he says like they would talk about several occasions where what we needed as a creative cartoonist was a magazine with slick paper reproduction quality and fair pay rates right here and it didn't exist at the time yeah and then he finds metal or lot in france right right see here's the uh oh yeah part like uh there was another underground cartoonist attacked him in print blah 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 and it was about the sci-fi fantasy stuff and this is where you get like the bill griffith uh the most apparent reason is that he's jealous of my talent and popularity um, attacked on the grounds that uh, cartoonists who did horror, horror science fiction stories in general, blah blah blah. So you know that that's all of this is a makes sense because like Bill Griffith and and Spiegelman with, with like Arcade Magazine, you know that's like the more highfalutin dudes and Cor Corbin and Von Bode who aren't shy about drawing spaceships and and leaning into the pulp like. They all got into comics like with the same materials, you know, yeah. that they had access to. And some guys lean more toward genre and the other guys lean more toward uh, Dada or whatever you want to call as it be the pinhead. Yeah. Talks a lot like mentions cinematic quality in this sequence. But movies are another one of the big influences yeah. that come up again and again. And we'll get more into that in part three. Um, comments here from Harlan Ellison and, and Jim Steinem, Steinman and... Uh, same kind of thing, you know, sexual richness. Ellison says it was as if Rich had been born to illustrate my stories about the world of the rover packs and down unders. Um, the meatloaf cover, which he says they needed it in like a week. Like he basically did one and sent it in and it was like with the deadlines, this is it. Yeah. Uh, you know, becomes a very iconic thing. I always wondered about that. It's kind of amazing to me that the way that comes about where it's just like, Somebody was a fan, and you didn't even have time to really work with Corbin. It was just like, here it is. I I bet you that was twenty grand. Yeah, because like in our lifetime, an album cover was about ten, uh, and the music biz was way better back then. It might have been fifty thousand dollars. It could have been gigantic money. It's very funny too to see that and think of Meatloaf. Yeah, it's like it can only thing. happen without you know, like in that kind of deadline crunch. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. think anybody would art direct that for Meatloaf, but right. I don't know. What do I know? Uh, you know, and you mentioned the undergrounds. To me, like, it's remarkable that he can do this work, but then he can do this stuff, and it feels like that's right at home in the undergrounds. Like, the mark-making. Yeah. It, it just feels exactly like it fits in there. He would try stuff, too. Like, I got a Fantagore real close, uh, where he'll do, like, like, airbrush black and white, and it actually it's too muddy. It doesn't work, but you don't know until you put see it in print. You know, so then he will do the, the, the pen style and maybe use some zips and stuff like that once he realizes, oh, this uh this airbrush stuff isn't working for, you know, the shitty newsprint and whatever else. Now this one is fucking sexy to me. This with that, is the with one. that den. Yeah. You know, seeing the sculptures and stuff. This is amazing. Because it looks like he's drawing. That is not an illustration. That's, no. that's Play-Doh. And they talk about, you know, this is a clay model. They get into things of, like, actually photographing this stuff. He uses photo illustration in some of his story experiments. And he mentions that, like, how important the technical experimentation is. Not just, like, with stories, but also in the art stuff. And I think that's how you get a guy whose art doesn't look like anybody else's. It yeah. was a value that he had and and worked towards exploiting that. And, and in order to do that... You need a lot of time, 
so you have to you can't be playing around you can't be you can't take your wife out on a date once a week even you need you need that much time to like work on your stuff and uh you gotta you gotta just kind of have the balls man to 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 woodshed and practice and and kind of do away with the affectations of what we know comics to be like that i mean that's a mutant world face you know mm-hmm. like like we we can recognize some of this shit yeah he says there's a certain bodily proportion the emphasis on limbs hands and feet it's relevant to how i see the figures the hands are emphasized because to the characters they're the most important tool kind of love that you know it's certainly distinct in his art but it's not something i really thought about too much here it is i try to be inventive in every way not only in the stories i do but in the techniques i use yeah and you know he invented a technique that his system of cover overlays and he kind of lays that out where he's essentially painting the color separations in with black to do like the color mixes and the values wild yeah check out check our uh, dennis kitchen uh, shoot interview that we recently posted uh because i asked kitchen like okay you guys you print fever dreams up with that amazing airbrushed cover by richard corbin what the hell does he send you and uh from the sound of it it's basically like here are here are all the ingredients which would be the films and here is the recipe like it's a, it's a science like let's not be artful with this print job here are the tool here are the pieces here's the order of pieces because i think it's like dark darkest color on the bottom and then uh here's how you print it yeah it's um i actually thought of a different coloring process that i plan to use soon yeah now, i'm thinking too. of a story that'll fit the color process same uh but it, it's so interesting to hear him discussing it and it surprises me that it's not something you see widely done by others and Dude, i mean he is unique in a lot of ways but still you'd think there'd be a few people disciples here's that the thing really trying to you know keep pushing his ideas further down the road we've been entering a comics education here on cartoonist kayfabe for almost five years jimmy and we're embarking upon projects that we're going to be able to use that five years of education on top of our previous 20 years of experience and there's going to be some good comics coming from our pens uh in the in the forthcoming uh, couple of years yeah look look at these uh creators oliver stone and jim steranko and uh oliver stone starts with comparing barry windsor smith and sort of the unique different direction he went with uh corbin being equally kind of unique in the direction he's going pushing the visual style of comics so that's kind of kind of good steranko i think really gives a nice kind of a nice appraisal of him Corbin, one of the artists, a true original who is still able to create the unexpected, even for those who know his work intimately. Uh, remarkable in his ability to tie the tales of over and underground comics together, producing material highly acceptable to both. This still didn't happen in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. This was still a divide. Yeah. You know, so for him to do this in the 70s and 80s, like decades before it just became like reference everything, draw influences from all over the place. He was doing it 20 years before most of uh comics was was working that way yeah and really created disciples but what's interesting about his approach is it's so complex so tough to to do that his disciples are disciples almost in name only in a way like like you'll hear him being name checked but maybe not aesthetically see the corbin in people's 
artworks. Well, that's the thing. You know, you could be a Corbin disciple and it could be purely based on story. Yeah. You know, it could be based on nothing with the technique. You know, it's, it's, he's made these worlds and these guys that make worlds, like there's a lot you could be pulling from and consider a big influence and still ignore some other element of their work. Yeah. Talks about Roger Corman here. And I don't know if, I think it's on this first page. He kind of goes through some stuff and talks about various like television, um, mythology and history that he's interested in books that he's interested in and i like seeing all that stuff but corman roger corman and his poe movies are a big influence that he talks about for you know a couple of pages worth of columns here and uh that seems like an unusual name and part of it is efficiency something that that corman admires but i think that's more of if i could apply it to my own work you need that efficiency if you're not making blockbusters right um but he clearly he's taken in a lot from him old horror movies of course yeah you know, as you might suspect yeah and i think man if you watch some of that post stuff the colorized joints man there might be some color in the next interview he talks about the way he describes his color is you play with the knobs and the tint and the hues and shit on your tv yes. and like that's what he's going for and and when, when he says it you see it yeah so imagine seeing a a, a, a corman poe flick on a shitty cathode ray tube tv with a color all jacked it has this color for yeah. sure this is one of his early airbrush paintings i love it it's so bizarre like the the weird green creature stuff it, and it's kind of overworked you know like a young yeah. artist does yeah i love it it's great the, shapes colors the, the grass awesome. the ground texture the terrain is with all the frisket and all that stuff like that's the most confusing th part of it especially if it's mostly airbrush because like like how do you cut that stuff you know yeah i was looking at, at stuff like this where you get to see just your black and white right yeah and i wonder what all techniques he's using because obviously airbrush and masking things off is a big part of it but what else is he doing you know like especially on the ground texture some of that stuff feels like maybe you're just painting some of those harder edge lines right. on um i don't know man it's it's a lot to consider certainly not your standard approach to comic book art and especially of that time period adopts uh well i guess it'll be in the next interview but adapts to like digital very early early 90s he's using computers and, and playing with that process so this rounds out this uh interview section um or the heavy metal interview and i don't know if there's anything that we missed on his rebuttal ed anything else that you remember from the rebuttal that you wanted to go over there's a you know, some of the stuff is very technical. Like, there's a part where they're talking about a book with Gil Kane, and then they switch over to Bloodstar, and it's not clear in the interview. So there's some technical notes like that. Yeah, what, what I will say is that uh, I, I am very comfortable saying that you and I pulled all the best stuff that Corbin talks about from that interview, but it was a long way to get there. And it could have been done in one interview, but we had to, like really kind of dig into that conversation to get there because of just so much the you know what it was the interviewer was trying to be the star of of the conversation rather than like giving the shine to the subject right uh so you know we got through it so you don't have to yeah there's some stuff in there though definitely some of the technique stuff in that third part i think is my favorite from that yeah from that section so comic book rebels um this was a book that i did not know about when we started the channel and it would come up in Wizard magazines, and it was like, man, that book sounds good. You know, need to find that. And uh, a kayfaber sent sent us the copy. Maybe sent us two copies. I don't know how you got yours, but uh, thanks to Shane Park Parkey for sending this in because heck of a book. And uh, I'd encourage people if they're interested in this subject, 
book to seek out. This is not an expensive book to find, um, but it does have a great list of creators in here and Richard Corbin, subject for today. So let's keep digging into this. Yeah, yeah. there are so few Corbin interviews. You know, the, these may be the only two. You know, there's a, a little bit of an example maybe of that airbrush black and white. And depending on your reproduction and paper makes a gigantic difference in just how muddy that stuff goes. One of the things that he said, I think it was in heavy metal, was that often he would send off the color to the printer and would be curious what's going to come back because it's all in his head. And, you know, if it's just black and white, you can see a little bit more on your uh, on your original art. But still, the way printing is, there's still a lot of range as to uh, how that's going to turn out. And in those old hippie days, man, we heard it from Dennis Kitchen himself. There might be some dude half, half high out of his mind turning the cranks. Yeah, definitely. Um, and should note, you know, this is early 90s. So at this point in the 80s, one of the things that he adds is a big self-publishing piece whenever he's going through Fanagore. And uh, we'll look at some of those comics at some point because I've been picking those up as much as I can. And they do full color yeah. printing that's beautiful in the mid 80s yeah. as well as black and white. And uh, says, you know, the success of the Turtles is part of what, what led him to that. That and lack of certain opportunities. Business maybe not being great for him in the mid 80s. Yeah, well... With the Ninja Turtles uh, coming out and the proliferation of the 1980s comic shop in the wake of Dark Knight and Watchmen, uh, there is a speculator entrepreneurship that happens and there's more comic shops. So he lays numbers out, man. You can put a comic out, you will sell 50,000 just amongst all the direct market possibilities. You know and I know, man, if you sell um, 50,000 or something, you're going to do all right, especially if it's self-published because you're not just taking 25% or of the, of that, you know, 20 cents on a dollar, you're taking 10%, you know, you're taking half for profit for yourself. And that's, uh, that's a good number. One of the first guys he pulls out, the interviewer brings up EC comics, of course. And yeah. he says, yeah, yeah, definitely. But, uh, the next thing he goes to is Jesse Marsh's Tarzan, who at this point, like the Hernandez brothers have sung his praise. There've been yeah. a handful of artists that really point him out even toth a fan of uh, jesse marsh not as much for russ manning he says russ manning was maybe a little bit after his time and a little bit too polished yeah yeah like the marsh it, it, it eludes me so much man like i like i talk with like gary groth and stuff and i'm just like yeah i just don't know i, I don't know what, what people see it's an opposite direction of ec it's kind of neat that that corbin sees both as influence because i think of ec as excess yeah. you know it is like as much ink as you can put on that page and marsh is kind of the opposite where it's yeah. like one line that you know that's a good conversation to have because you can you can enjoy both like there are so many uh comments that come into the channel and they try to point out like hypocrisy yeah because it's like you could suggesting that there should be one line of thinking like uh we had uh uh, Brian Bolland on and we're like oh that's so cool how like you, you take this photo ref shot of your face and then you manipulate it you turn it to the Joker and then you gave praise to Wendy Peeney who used no reference for a particular face that you were looking at it's a cartoon face and people were like pull because a Bolland thing was new we should talk about this on the weekly next week because okay. this has been a topic that has been on my mind a lot I saw somebody isolate one of our videos and it was um I think it was an artist edition and we were looking at Walt Simonson Fantastic Four and I was like man I'd read these you know seven eight, eight times a week twice on Sunday over the John Byrne but the context is John Byrne's run it's not bad it gets a ton of credit the Simonson run does not get much credit and so you know the context of that statement was 
this is a really good Fantastic Four run that people don't talk about. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the fact that Corbin is pointing out, yeah, you could dig the excess, and you could dig the spare, and that's not hypocrisy. It's, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a wide diet. Yeah. He says he learned lighting from EC Comics, you know, Wally Wood, of course. I feel like Wally Wood taught a generation or two of artists lighting, and, uh, and Will Eisner. So it's kind of neat to see Eisner's name pop up here. This would have been after he had colored some of the Eisner stuff for that. That's true. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of neat to see. I, I always love when an artist talks about another good artist. Yeah. It's always, uh, it's always something I, I feel, I don't know, it's informative. Um, you know, influences from cinema, as I said, you know, his style, very cinematic, very photographic. So that's something that comes up. And it's a lot of what you would expect, the horror stuff. I imagine him and, you know, in my head I have these fantasies, and it's him and Mike Mignola sitting around talking about some of those 40s, black and white, 30s and 40s uh, horror movies and the lighting in those yeah. <laughs> character designs. I, I would say that there's a redundancy uh, bet between both interviews, but, you know, the, what we're pointing out is two places where you could read Richard Corbin interviews. Uh, but what I will say, and once again, it's, 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 it's the interviewer stuff, is like, it's, it's, uh, the information is pulled from Richard Corbin in a more pleasing way in this conversation than, than the previous. But you're getting a lot of the same basic intel for sure. Yeah, and more detail of the James Warren experience there, which kind of makes me want to read that James Warren biography now. I think you got to get it while it's hot, man. I think, I think, I think it's, it's out of print. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, know, I know a shelf where one is sitting. <laughs> So I probably do need to pick it up if I'm going to talk this way. Right. Otherwise, it'll disappear. And, you know, once it's off that shelf, that's when I'll decide I really want it. Uh -huh. So go out and buy those James Warren biographies, everybody, while you still can. Uh, gets into heavy metal. And it makes me think, you know, this is some Steve Bissett influence, probably. Yeah. I, I don't know this other interviewer. You know, I mentioned Stanley Wider. I don't... I don't know that name, but I know Bissett Heavy Metal had this big impact on that generation. So it's fun to hear those stories, you know, about like how he got into Heavy Metal and what that was like, because we've seen him talk about the need for a glossy magazine. What did they call them? The um, Slick. Slick, maybe. Yeah, it was something, but basically production values is what that was code for. And it's so funny to hear people talk that way because that's not a conversation now. I've never heard anybody really say anything to that effect, like our, our peers. Sure. You know, we have that option, I guess, once they found, um, you know, good paper or whatever. Well, everybody wants to go away from the slick now. Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about reading that in, um, I can't remember if it was because of reading this interview, but thinking of how, like, that slick paper is sort of fraught. Because the old newsprint, everything sort of looked a certain way, you know? And so your, your floor was not as low you know right. like, like you could do bad work but it was still sort of had a charm of comic book and with slick paper now like a lot of stuff looks really bad where yeah. it's like man if you could bleed that a little bit and doll it out with some yellow newsprint might be an improvement it's true a, a lot of it has to do with that black line man uh the, like the black just the way it sits on the page compared to the color is so divorced i think that that's like a common thing with the materials that comes into the studio from the p.o box the self-published comics and things like that's a common piece that just is like le less attractive he gets into some of the um licensed and collaborations adaptations and things and like he has to negotiate some of some of that stuff you know if he's if he's interested in adapting somebody's work that's something that he kind of has to navigate you know like he's a 
He's an unusual creator in that sense, in that how he's so isolated. In yeah. a time before self-publishing was a big thing or common, like he's doing a lot of work that he probably had to find a path to do it, as opposed to like this is how you do it. We've, you know. Yeah. It's common. It yeah. wasn't common then. Yeah, and stuff like like that previous piece about the the uh, cover uh, price, like that could have been worked out if you had a little network of homies who could tell you, "Ah, oh, do you fuck that up, man?" Like uh, the the discount is is more than that so you better make the price a little bit higher and 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 that's a thing like you know in the, in recent years where people have gotten into comics at like age 19 in college that's they're even if they're they have peers and stuff they're kind of like in that same space where they have so much to learn about the most basic yeah. part of comic making but what they bring to the table is the potential to not have bad old logic uh and they might innovate something completely fantastic but they're also going to have a hard road not knowing like the simple stuff too right there's that comment about the fifty thousand. uh when we started self-publishing again every title would sell at least fifty thousand copies talks about doing full color work which is an oddity you know like we always say 80s black and white explosion so rare to do full color work but he said the foreign markets demanded it and yeah. I wonder about him talking to like, you know, this that that to me reminds me of like Will Eisner talking about um, kind of the publishing side of his yeah. his work. Uh, I, I wonder if Corbin would talk to somebody like a Will Eisner about publishing and, and some of the ins and outs. Certainly he was part of Metal Erlon and, and uh, knew that market and just getting to know Jeff Darrow and talk, talk to him and to hear about what the French require and what they what they want as their distribution mechanism of the comic that is being read said most of those guys they just do like a 60 pager a year and they don't all necessarily do big numbers or anything but like that's the format uh, so you got to figure out how to make that part of it work two great corbin interviews uh well let's say two corbin interviews uh where a lot of good information is is rolled out um comic book rebels and what issues of heavy metal are those jimmy they are June 1981, July, August, and September. So four consecutive months from uh, the fall of 1981. And that's the iconic, like, VHS cover. Yeah. Image right there, man. Super cool. K-Favors, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. King K-Favors get all our videos uh, ahead of anybody else. And they were uh, watching us and kicking it with us while we uh, recorded this video live. The vids are also brought to you by the books that we make and 2023, big year for cartoonist Kayfabe. The Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus is going to be coming out later this year, 504 pages with 140 pages of stuff that is not in the original four volumes. So support that book. If you order it early, you're getting a, a steep discount, man. It's going pretty cheap on Amazon right at the moment. Uh, there the uh, next round of Red Room is coming out. Red Room Crypto Killers 1. This is the cover to the regular comic that'll be on the racks, but we got five flavors, man. We got the Jim Rug variant, Peach Momoko. I did a variant. There's a sketch cover variant for Red Room Crypto Killers. It's going to be coming out on a monthly basis. Each issue completely self-contained. Uh, there are four volumes of Hip Hop Family Tree, three volumes X-Men Grand Design, currently two trade paperbacks of Red Room out there, and hardcover WYSIWYG. Jimmy, what do you have? 
I have Street Angel, Princess of Poverty coming out later this spring from Image Comics. You can pre-order that one now wherever you buy comics. It collects 240 pages of all the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel, Deadly Scroll Alive, also from Image. These are two books that are designed to be a set. It'll complete your Street Angel collection, so add both of those to your collection if you haven't already. Hulk Grand Design is available in fluorescent green, oversized treasury edition right now wherever books are bought and sold, and the Plain Janes the first young adult graphic novel uh, also available still while copies last you can also join me on patreon.com slash jim rug where you can see more of my comics and art download out of print zines and minis and you can see the new comics that i am working on and posting starting in april there what else do we have going on jimmy subscribe to the cartoonist kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video you can also find cartoonist kayfabe t-shirts merchandise hats mugs stickers and more at our pay at our spread shop that link is below this video great ways to support the channel given those marching orders will be on our way make more comics <laughs>